one day I'm going to try out for the worship team just so that I can get one of those cool earbuds put in my ear. Make me feel like I'm in the secret service or something like that. If you have a Bible, I want you to hold it up and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error first matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, and then I want you to turn over for just a moment to John chapter 20, verse 31. So John chapter 5, that's where we're going to be this morning, but then John chapter 20, verse 31. The gospel of John is one of only several books in the Bible where the purpose of the book is clearly written in the book. Now, John's first letter is another book like that. John clearly gives us the purpose of 1 John in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. And so John tells us his purpose in writing that first letter is to give us some marks that can help us know if these are in our life that we have eternal life. And so when we're reading 1 John and we read through those five chapters, we see some marks, some characteristics that will be in our life if we are a follower of Jesus. And when we have doubts, when we're struggling with whether we're really saved or not, and we read 1 John, we see those marks, we can go, yes, I know Jesus. He saved me. He's changed my life. Now, the Gospel of John is similar in that in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, John gives us his purpose for writing this Gospel. I want you to listen to what he says. He said, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life by the power of his name. So John tells us that he's not just giving us stories that took place about Jesus. He's not just telling us events, random events that happened in Jesus' life because he tells us at the end of the gospel that Jesus did so many things. He did so many miracles that that we could write book after book after book and even the universe would not be able to contain all that Jesus has done. You see, when you read the Gospel of John, from the very first page to the very last page, John is writing with a purpose. And his purpose is to convince you that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And so when he paints these pictures of Jesus, he's painting pictures that will let us know Jesus is indeed the Messiah. When he's telling us these encounters that Jesus had with people as he walked through life during these three years, he is telling us specific encounters that will help us know this Jesus, he is the Christ. And so when we look at John chapter 5 and we read a story about this man who was healed, it's not just a story about a man who was healed. 
in this story and the subsequent words after the story, John is letting us know very clearly that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, when we look at John chapter 5, you discover if you read it very quickly that it's divided into three different parts. The first part is the healing of a lame man. We see that story. He's healed. The second part is the harassing that comes from the religious leaders. The religious leaders begin to harass Jesus because he healed this lame man. And then the final part of the chapter, which is where the meat is, we see the response Jesus gave to the religious leaders. And so I want us to unpack this chapter beginning with the healing. Let's start with verse 1. It says, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir. The sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. So someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But the miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you're well, so stop sinning. Or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now after Jesus had spent some time ministering in Galilee, we read about this in chapter 4, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know what feast, but we do know that there were three feasts that all Jewish males were required by law to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover. There was the Feast of of Weeks or Pentecost. And there was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now there was this pool near the sheep's gate, which is where they brought in the animals that would be sacrificed in the temple. And this pool was called Bethesda, which most people translated as House of Mercy. And it's at this place, this pool, that is known as the House of Mercy, that this story takes place. Now, I want you to listen to what it says in verse 3. It says, crowds of sick people, lots of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. So around this pool, the pool of Bethesda, where all of these sick people with all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of illnesses, all kinds of diseases. Now, notice what happens next if you're looking in your Bible. Verse 5 happens next most likely in your bible there's not a verse four 
And you're going, what's going on here? Why isn't there a verse 4? Well, the reason is, is because in most of the older manuscripts of this text, verse 4 isn't included. You see, when, when they, you're taking the Bible and the Bible is coming together, there are a number of manuscripts, texts that are found. And, and the manuscripts that are closest to the time which these events took place are the oldest. And, and most people say that they would have the most in, um, in integrity in regard to what they are saying is accurate. But the oldest manuscripts don't have verse 4. But I believe they need to have verse 4. Because verse 4 gives context to what's going on here. I want you to listen to verse 4. It says, For an angel of the Lord came from time to time and disturbed the water, and the first person to step down into the water afterwards was was healed. Now, if verse 4 isn't there in your Bible, it's probably in a footnote at the bottom of the page. And so what verse 4 says is that from time to time, an angel of the Lord, a good angel, a godly angel would come. He would stir the water. And the very first person that got into the water after the angel stirred the water would be healed. Now listen to what it says in verse 7. When Jesus asked the man, does he want to be healed? He said, I can't because I don't have anyone to put me in the water when it bubbles up. Now because this story of the Angel isn't found in most of the ancient manuscripts. Many people say that it was just superstition. It didn't really happen. But I believe it happened. You see, I believe God sent an angel. And from time to time, that angel would stir the waters of that pool in Bethesda. And the very first person that would step into that water was healed. Now, why do I believe that happened? Because there was a crowd of people there. I mean, if a miracle never happened there that crowd would disperse. That crowd wouldn't stay there. Over time, that crowd would dissipate and disappear. But there was always a crowd at this pool waiting for the water to stir, hoping that they could be the first in the water so that they could have their very own miracle. They knew that miracles had happened in the past there. They had seen some miracles happen in the past there. And now they wanted their very own miracle. And of all the people that were there at that pool that day was this lame man. He had been lame for 38 years. Think about that, 38 years. Now, I've been struggling with back pain since January of 2020. I know exactly when my back pain started. And for almost three years now, I've been struggling, wrestling, trying to cope with this back pain. And to be honest with you, there are times that it feels like I've been struggling with back pain for all my life. And it's just been three years. So imagine how this man felt who had been lame for 38 years. For 38 years, he had been lying there, suffering, waiting, hoping, and yet nothing. I'm not sure about you, but there's a good chance I would have given hope, given up hope by then. But, not, but this man was still there. He, he may have given up hope already, but he had nowhere to go. He had nowhere to take, no one to take him anywhere. He was lame. And so there he was at that pool all alone at times, night and day, because he was stuck there. And as a lame man, he would beg for food and people would give him food. People would occasionally give him money so that he could pay for some scraps to eat. But that was his life. 
And then came Jesus. Jesus walked to that pool. And of all the people at that pool waiting for a chance for a miracle, Jesus picked this one man. He singled out this one man. And and notice what Jesus said. He said, would you like to get well? Now, you would think this man would have shouted, yes, I want to get well. Heal me. But that's not what he said. I, I want you to notice what he said there. He he said that there's not anyone to help me get into the water when it starts bubbling up. I I can't get well. Now, obviously, he didn't know who Jesus was because if he would have known who Jesus was, he would have immediately saw Jesus. He would have heard of all the miracles Jesus performed, and he would have said, yes, Lord, heal me. But that's not what he said. He had no clue who Jesus was. And yet in spite of that, Jesus said, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately, in the blinking of an eye, the man could walk. I want you to understand something. It doesn't matter what your sickness may be. It doesn't matter how long you have been suffering. Jesus is able to heal you. So never lose hope. You may have been suffering for years and years and years. And you're about to lose hope. Don't lose hope. Jesus can always do miracles. And maybe you need a miracle today. Maybe you need a physical miracle. Maybe it's an emotional miracle. Maybe it's a financial miracle. Maybe it's a relational miracle. But Jesus has the power to meet your needs. Jesus has the power to heal your hurt, whatever it may be. But I want you to notice something. Jesus didn't heal everybody at that pool. He healed one man at that pool. When Jesus was walking through life for three years, he healed a lot of people. There were times when he healed people by themselves. They were all alone and Jesus healed them. There were other times when tons of people, crowds of people would be brought to Jesus and Jesus would heal them all. But there were more people that Jesus didn't heal than he did heal. What you need to understand is Jesus doesn't always heal. God doesn't always heal. God may not heal you. But if he doesn't, don't let that cause you to lose hope. You hold on to that hope because God's going to come through one way or the other. Here's what I know. I'm praying for God to heal my back. I'm looking forward to the day when I can get in the pool and throw my grandkids up in the air and not be in pain when I do that. I'm looking forward to being able to put a backpack on my back and and hike on the Appalachian Trail. I'm looking forward to doing that. I want to do that. I'm looking forward to being able to go and swing a golf club. I haven't done that in over three years. I want to do that even though I am no good. I want to just swing it. And I believe that God's going to heal my back. Now, as of right now, I'm, I'm, I'm still in pain. As of right now, the, the thing that I'm praying for hasn't happened. But every day, I want you to know, every day I'm praying, Lord, heal my back. Lord, give me the opportunity to walk through life without pain in my back. And I trust him. If he chooses to heal me 
all glory and honor goes to him. If for some reason he says, I'm going to let you walk through this life with this pain, you know what? All glory and honor goes to him. I trust him. So don't lose hope. God may choose to do a miracle in your life. He has the power. He has the ability. So don't feel like you can't ask him. Ask God to do those miracles. And notice what it says in verse 9. This is the key to this story. It says, but this happened on the Sabbath. I want you to listen. Jesus deliberately chose to do this miracle on the Sabbath. He could have done it any day. But he chose to go to this pool on the Sabbath and heal this man on the Sabbath. And when the religious leaders saw this man carrying his mat, they questioned him according to their interpretation of the law. Carrying a mat on the Sabbath was work, and therefore what he was doing was unlawful. Now, it's important to understand what he was doing was not breaking Jewish law. What Jesus told him to do by picking up the mat was not breaking Jewish law. But rather, it was breaking their Jewish traditions. They had taken the law and they had added hundreds of other little laws to the law, helping them to better understand the law. But in all of these little laws that they added to the law, they became a burden to the people. You see, the law of God just simply says this, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. What that means is that the Sabbath is to be a day set apart for the glory of God. That's God's law. But they had taken this law that that God had given for the good of man and they had twisted it and turned it to the point that it had become a burden for man. And instead of enjoying the Sabbath, they were fearful of breaking the laws of the Sabbath. This man who hadn't walked for 38 years had been healed and the Pharisees were more concerned with how they perceived was a violation of the law that they focused on what he was doing carrying the mat and they missed the miracle. He was walking. And I wonder, I really do wonder how often we can get caught up in our religious traditions And because of our religious traditions, we miss the miracle that God wants to do. You say, Rocky, what do you mean by that? I'm Southern Baptist. We're a Southern Baptist church. We don't post it on everything, but we're Southern Baptists. And Southern Baptists are good in a lot of ways. I mean, we have a strong love for the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. We believe it's true from cover to cover. We're a missional people. There are a lot of things that are good. But a lot of us Southern Baptists, we, we have this idea that, that the day and age of miracles is a thing of the past. And we take passages of Scripture and, and we interpret those passages of Scripture to say that. So therefore, we believe that anything that's in the realm of the miraculous or a lot of things that's in the realm of the miraculous are suspicious at best. And I believe, maybe just maybe, that we're missing experiencing the power of God in a more supernatural way because in our ignorance of knowing who God is, we're handcuffing God. And what we need to do is just unleash God and trust God for miracles and let God be God. And so we pray for God to heal, and if God heals, we give Him the glory. We don't take the credit. We're nothing special. And if God doesn't heal, we praise God because He's sovereign 
And one day there's coming a day when there is no more pain or suffering or sorrow or tears. Amen? We trust him with that. But here are these religious leaders. They were more concerned about, about this man carrying this stinking mat. And so they came to the man and they said, who told you you can carry this mat? He said, I don't know. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. But a little bit later in the temple, he was in there. The man was in there thanking God. He had enough sense to realize that he had been lame for 38 years and he wanted to go to the temple and he wanted to give God thanks for this miracle that he experienced. And when he was in the the temple praising God, thanking God for this miracle, Jesus came up to him. And you know what Jesus said? Uh, Jesus said this. I want you to listen to it. He said, stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Now, why did he say that? Well, some people say that that Jesus said that because it was sin that caused this man to become lame. In other words, this man was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And and in doing that something he shouldn't have been doing, he became lame. And, And I want you to know, hear me. Sin can cause sickness. Sin can cause physical problems. You realize that, right? I mean, if you overdrink, you can get cirrhosis of the liver and you can die. It's not good for you to overdrink. You don't need to do that. The Bible warns against that. If you have sex outside of marriage with one person, you may get a sexual disease. Why? Because you're out playing around, you're not following God's rules, you're doing it your way, and there's consequences to the sin. And so you need to understand that there are times when sin brings consequences into our life physically. But I don't really think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is coming to this man in the temple, and and let me paraphrase. I think Jesus is saying this. You were sick for 38 years couldn't walk. You were stuck there without any help, without any hope. I've touched you and I've given you physical healing. But there's something a whole lot worse than being physically sick. It's being spiritually sick. And there's something a whole lot worse than physical death. It's spiritual death. And if you keep on sinning the way you have been in the past, then you're going to experience something far worse than the pains of the choices you've made that brought physical sickness and physical death. You're going to experience spiritual death. Jesus is telling him, you need to repent. You need to change the way that you've lived. Well, by this time, the man realized who Jesus was. And when the religious leaders came back to him again, he said it was Jesus He's the one who told me to take up my mat. And that brings me to the second part of the story here, and that's the harassing. And I want to hurry here. Listen to what it says in verse 16. It says, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father's always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. What's amazing to me when I read this is that this miracle didn't cause these religious leaders to come to Jesus and say, how did you do this? Who are you? This man was lame for 38 years. You told him to get up, and he got up. How? They didn't do that. They totally missed the miracle 
They focused on their preconceived ideas and they came to Jesus questioning him for what he was doing. And the Bible says that they harassed him, the New Living Translation. The the Greek word there means to pursue with the intent to persecute. And so it says here that because of what Jesus did, the religious leaders began pursuing Jesus to persecute him. And later on it says they wanted to kill him. And the reason? Jesus didn't fit into their narrative. Their view of what the Messiah was to look like and what the Messiah was to do. They were irritated with him because how he was treating the Sabbath. He had already healed a man on the Sabbath before this. Shortly after this, Jesus defended his disciples as they broke off some grain and ate it on the Sabbath. And then after that, Jesus healed another man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath. And they didn't like this because they thought that the Sabbath was all about these rules and rituals. So Jesus wants to show them what the Sabbath is really all about. And listen to what Jesus says. He said, my father's always at work and so am I. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, yes, the Sabbath was a day of rest. And yes, God rested on the Sabbath. But God didn't quit working on the Sabbath. God is always at work. God never stops working. And aren't you thankful for that? I mean, what would happen if God stopped working today? If you think the world is messed up now, imagine what would happen if God took his hand off of everything. God's always working. And what that means is wherever you're at and whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, you can cry out to God and he's not on vacation. He's not in time out. He's not taking a day off. He is available to meet your needs. So Jesus is saying, yes, God rested on the Sabbath, but God is always at work. And then he said, and I am always at work. Now that was bad. Because when he said that, what he was doing was he was claiming that he was equal with the Father. He was equal with God. So here was Jesus with these religious leaders saying, my Father is always working. You're misunderstood the Sabbath. And then he said, and I'm always working. I'm doing the same things that the Father is doing. They were ready to kill him. And so it's here that Jesus gives the response. And i got to tell you, this response, you need to take some time this week and just read verse 19 to the end of the chapter over and over and over because it is filled with meat. Three times in this section, Jesus uses the phrase, verily, verily, truly, truly, surely, surely. The Greek word is amen. Amen, amen. Three times in this section, Jesus says that. Now, I don't know what your translation says here. The, the, living, the New Living Translation only says truly. But what Jesus said is amen, amen. Truly, truly. What that means is this is trustworthy and true. To repeat it, is to give it added emphasis. So Jesus is saying, this is what he's saying, listen, Jesus is saying, I'm about to throw a truth bomb on you, and you better pay attention. And then what Jesus says, beginning in verse 19, I want to give it to you as a whole, and then I want to share with you several truths, is Jesus is trying to convince them that he is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
He, he tries to convince him by what he calls himself. Over and over, he calls himself the son, the son of God, the son of man. Now, no one would ever use that phrase. Because in the Old Testament, that was the phrase to describe the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. And so no one would use that phrase because it meant you're saying you are the one that God is sending to us to be the Savior of the world. No one would use that unless they were the Christ. And over and over, Jesus said, I'm the Son, the Son, the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man. But then Jesus claims to do things only God can do. He claims God's power. Things that only the Creator can do, Jesus said, I can do. And so we see this throughout. Jesus is trying to tell these religious leaders, listen, I'm who you've been looking for, and yet you don't see me. So he's trying to explain, I am the one. Now, what are the truths? Let me give you these truths, and then we're going to close. Now, the first truth is kind of heavy, but I think it's important. So write this down. Even though the Son is equal with the Father, the Son submits to the Father in all things. Now write that down. I'm going to explain it to you. Even though the Son is equal with the Father, the Son submits to the Father in all things. Now listen to what it says in verses 19 and following. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, amen, amen, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does, for the Son loves the Father and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works in healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. Now, these verses are absolutely amazing because they reveal something about the nature of God. You see, the Son and the Father are in perfect harmony. They are in perfect unity together with the Holy Spirit. They are one God existing together for all eternity. And yet... In this passage, we see that the Son submits to the Father. He does only what He sees the Father doing. And He does only what the Father tells Him to do. Do you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying, Father, remove this cup from me. But then He says, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Do you remember when Jesus said, I have come to do the will of my Father? Over and over and over, we see that. You see, Jesus' life here on this earth is an example of complete submission to the will of the Father. But understand, it's the submission that's not based upon power. This isn't saying that the Father is more powerful than the Son. It's a submission that is based on love. Jesus is as much God as the Father is God, and yet he submits to his Father's will out of eternal love for the Father. Now, why is that important? Well, because God has created this world to run effectively on submission. Did you hear that? God has created this world to run effectively on submission. Husbands, are to love their wives and wives are to submit to their husbands. Do they do it because their husbands are more powerful, they're stronger, they're smarter? No, the Bible says they do it out of love. Children are to submit to their parents in all things. Now, do children submit 
because their parents are more powerful? Well, sometimes. <laughs> that's the only way they do, it seems. But that's not why a child submits. A child submits because they love their parents. Employees are to submit to their employers, it says. Citizens are to submit to the laws of the land and the governing authorities, the Bible says. The Bible even talks about submission in the church. Over and over again, we are taught about submission in Scripture and how vital it is in our relationships, and yet we all struggle with this thing. We all do. doesn't matter whether we're a wife, we're a child, we're an employee, we're a citizen. It doesn't matter. We struggle with this submission thing. And yet here is the son who is equal with the father in every way who is submitting to the father. They're in perfect harmony because of this. So the son is equal to the father and yet he submits to the father. Here's the second truth. Eternal life comes only through the son. Listen to what it says in verse 21. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. I tell you the truth. Those, this is verse 24. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God. And those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. Now, these verses are telling us that, that only God has the power of life and death. God's the one who creates. God's the one who breathes life into us. God has that power. But we're told that the Son also has that power, power that only is given to God. And Jesus exercised that power when he was on earth. He raised people from the dead. That's the power of life over death. But in the very next section, section, Jesus tells us that it's not just physical life that he has power over, spiritual life. And he tells us that anyone who believes in him will have life, will not be condemned for their sin, they will have already passed over from death into life. And then Jesus says that there are many who are hearing me now who are coming out of death into life. Jesus brings eternal life. For me, it was when I was an eight or nine-year-old boy. I don't remember everything about that day, but I got to tell you, I remember distinctly I was overwhelmed with my sin. Eight, nine-year-old boys haven't done a lot of crazy things, but I was overwhelmed. I was a sinner separated from God, and, and I was overwhelmed with the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God, and I knew Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And all I wanted to do was give my life to the one who died for me. I didn't understand everything about Jesus. I certainly didn't understand everything about me, but I just wanted to give everything I knew about me to everything I knew about Jesus. And at that moment, 1968, 1969, I crossed from death to life. From that moment on, I have been walking in eternal life. I'm not looking forward to eternal life. I'm living eternal life. 
Understand, if you're saved, you already have eternal life. You don't need to worry about hopefully gaining eternal life. You have it. Experience it. Live in it. Because God's already given it to you. But it only comes through Jesus. The third thing that Jesus says is that the Son is the final judge. Listen to what he says in verses 22 and 23. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honored the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. Now, before we go to verse 27, I've got to stop there. Did you hear what it said? If you're not honoring the Son, you cannot honor the Father. Did you get that? These religious leaders, they thought they were honoring the Father by seeking to put Jesus to the death. But Jesus said, if you're not honoring the Son, you will never honor the Father. Now today, how do we put that into practice? There are people all over the globe that say they love God, but they haven't given their life to Jesus. If you don't honor the Son, you'll never honor the Father. The two are inseparable. There is no honoring the Father apart from honoring the Son. The only way we can have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says beginning in verse 27. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time has come when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son. They will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. Those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Jesus said there's coming a day when I will judge everyone. Now, I want you to hear me. Jesus is standing in front of who? The religious leaders. He is trying in every way imaginable to tell them, I'm the one that you've been looking for. And he's looking at them, and he knows all things. Jesus knows that in the not-too-distant future, he is going to be standing before the Sanhedrin. And they are going to be judging him. And the Sanhedrin are going to condemn Jesus to death. He knows that he is going to face their judgment. But as he looks at them, he says, one day, you're going to stand before me. One day, each and every one of us are going to stand before Jesus. Those religious leaders, they're going to stand before Jesus. But so are you. So am I. The Bible says, it is appointed that a man wants to die after that, the judgment. The Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. These religious leaders knew that a judgment was going to come. They understood that, but, but when Jesus said... And that judgment, I'm going to be the one who's doing the judging. He was saying, I'm God. I'm God. One day you're going to stand before Jesus. And then notice the final truth here. We're out of time. God's word points to the Son from beginning to end. Verses 39 and 40 are part of a larger passage where Jesus is giving them evidence, witnesses to the fact 
that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And in verses 39 and 40, it says, You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. You see what Jesus is saying here is you go through the scriptures and you tell me you're living by the scriptures, but the scriptures from beginning to end are pointing you to me. Listen, the Bible is a picture of Jesus from cover to cover. Sure, the Bible gives us a lot of history about Israel and and even other nations, and the Bible tells us incredible stories from ancient past, but from the very first chapter to the very last chapter, the Bible is painting a portrait of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And what Jesus says is that if you are looking with an open mind and an open heart, you'll find me. In the scriptures. Here's what I believe is true. Anyone who is willing with an open heart and an open mind to read the scripture saying, God, show me if you're real, they're going to come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Every single person. You say, well, Rocky, what about those people who say, well, I don't believe it, and I've read the Bible. Well, the Bible speaks of those people. In Psalms, twice we're told this. The fool has said in his heart, his heart, there is no God. Because their deeds are evil. Now, unpack that. The fool has said in his heart, Not his head, not the the source of intellect and reasoning, but heart, the place of emotion. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why? Because when you look at the evidence, the evidence proves that there is a God and his name is Jesus. But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why? Because their deeds are evil. In other words... If I acknowledge that there is a God and Jesus is his name, then I have to be willing to surrender, to submit my life to his control. I have to acknowledge that he has a right to rule the world and to rule my life. And I don't want anyone to rule my life other than me. And so I'd rather just say he doesn't exist. That's what people do. Because hear me, the Bible gives evidence for anyone. Who really wants to know? So where are you? Where are you with God? Is he your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord? Have you examined the evidence and fallen on your face before him saying, God, forgive me. I'm yours. Or are you like these religious leaders? Notice what it says. Jesus said, you refuse to come to me. You refuse. You've made the willful decision not to receive me. Older brothers and sisters, that's crazy. You see, John is trying to convince his people, the Jews, and everyone else who reads this gospel that this Jesus is, He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he is the only way that we can find life and peace and hope for all eternity. And so where are you with Jesus?
if you don't know him. Swallow your pride, your self-righteousness, whatever it may be. Surrender to the one who can give you what you're looking for. And if you're here and you're struggling, you have needs, I'm here to tell you the one to go to is Jesus. He's the miracle worker. Been lame for 38 years? Take up your mat and walk. Haven't been able to see? Open your eyes. What do you see? Whatever it may be, Jesus can do a miracle in your life. But you've got to ask him. You've got to trust him. We're going to have our altar time. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to do that, you come. We'd love to tell you how to do that. If you have a need that you want us to pray about, you come and we'll do that. If you just want to come to this altar and pray, you do that. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to pray. And then our team is going to lead us in a song. Father God, this is your time. Have your way in my life, in our lives. Father, I pray that no one will leave here without responding to your perfect will for their life. Lord, I pray no one will walk out of here resisting the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our altar is open.